1 Corinthians chapter 13, and let's give careful attention to the entire chapter as we read beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, it's been a number of weeks since we were last in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul spells out the indispensable necessity of Christian love. And we've been going through it bit by bit. We were in verse 4. We considered that true Christian love suffers long and is kind. In other words, love is patient with offenses from others. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. We, we considered each of these in turn, and now we come to verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. And this word, this phrase, behave rudely, it's one word in the Greek, could be translated in a number of different ways. Love does not behave inappropriately, improperly, indecently, inconsiderately. Love does not behave shamefully or unbecomingly or discourteously. And really, the translation that we have is extremely helpful. The King James says unseemly. That's helpful. But I think love does not behave rudely. Really encapsulates what we're seeking to consider 
this evening. Now, at first glance, just taking it on the face of things, when you look at the word rudely, what comes to mind? Well, if you look at the rest of the things that are mentioned here when Paul is dealing with what love does and doesn't do, you can see right off the bat that love does not behave rudely fits right in with the other statements that are made in verses 4 through 6. And so, when we think of someone being rude, when we think of someone being inappropriate, uh, you know, we've all been in that situation where somebody does something, says something, and we say, boy, that was rude. And the kinds of things that provoke that response are the kinds of things that Paul is mentioning here. Uh, Love suffers long and is kind. Uh, When someone is impatient and they snap back, that is often classified as rude. Well, that was rude to overreact like that. Uh, Love does not envy. And we talked about envy involving when we are upset at the prosperity of others. And so somebody shares that they just got a job promotion, and instead of rejoicing with them in that, we make a remark, a rude comment. Uh, Or maybe we envy the person and they get fired from their job and we make a comment to to sort of kick them while they're down. It's envy, but it really produces a rude response. Uh, Love does not parade itself. And so uh, we're just boasting and showcasing all these things about ourselves and and people say, boy, that that was rude, the way that person was just showing off. Uh, you know, in a sporting event, you think of, uh, you know, the way people celebrate nowadays, it's, it's, it's often rude. It's rubbing, rubbing the opponent's nose in it. Love does not parade itself. It produces a rudeness uh, and, and that type of response. Uh, the same with love, being, uh, love not being puffed up. The same could apply. Uh, and if you think about the other statements in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Some of the most rude things that we say and do result from self-centeredness, self-seeking. We're not concerned about other people, and so we, whether we're mindful of it or not, we say and do rude things. We're not socially aware. We're not paying attention to anyone but ourselves. Love does not seek its own. Or, you know, if you cut in line or you're in the fellowship meal, you're barging through and trying to get to be first in line, love seeks not its own, that's rude. So, so th- these kinds of things uh, are part and parcel of, of this idea of rudeness. Uh, love is not provoked. Uh, in other words, love is not easily provoked. And once again, when we're impatient, when we snap back, we can be rude. Love thinks no evil. Uh, Love is not censorious, as Jonathan Edwards said, exaggerating the faults of others, nitpicking, criticizing, judgmental, these kinds of things. We can be at our rudest, as it were, when we're not following the instructions in these verses. Uh, And we could look at verse 6, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Uh, To rejoice in somebody's sin and downfall is rude. So, so again, you can see how this phrase fits in to the passage itself. But when we think about love not behaving rudely, 
before we begin to expound on it, we need to just pause and say that this is a very challenging topic. It's a challenging topic for me to think about, for me to expound and apply. It's a challenging topic for you to hear me preach because it may be that you've borne with me in rude things that I've done. Or maybe there's something that I mention in this sermon that's something that you've done. Or, or something that I've done. Or who knows? It can be a very, very touchy subject when we deal with rude behavior. Um, and so it's been a number of weeks. I didn't jump right into this sermon. I wanted to take my time, think about it, try to apply some of these things in my own life and, and really try to get a handle on it. Uh, in addition to that, it fit quite nicely with our morning sermon uh, from today. Because this morning we talked about the need to speak the truth. The need to be bold. Uh, we talked about uh, the need to not be so concerned with the praise of men as we are with the glory of God. And so I think, really, these two sermons are two sides of the same coin. Paul says that we need to speak the truth in love. This morning we looked at the need to speak the truth. But this evening we're going to consider the need that we have to speak the truth in love. In other words, speak the truth in a way that is appropriate that's not uh, inconsiderate or unbecoming or discourteous. If we speak the truth in love, then we're going to speak the truth in a way that is not rude. And uh, we'll get beyond just merely speaking the truth. It's more than our words, it's our actions. But you see the connection here. Uh, It would be inappropriate for me to preach on the zeal we need to have in not being concerned with the praise of men this morning without focusing this evening on the need to be courteous, the need to be sensitive, the need to be appropriate and take into consideration uh, the response that others may have to what is being said or done. So as we consider this statement, love does not behave rudely, let's begin by observing that love is not naively simplistic in its application of biblical wisdom. Love is not naively simplistic in its application of biblical wisdom. It has become a thing in the Reformed community in recent decades to assume that the most Reformed thing that we can do is throw caution to the wind and and boldly Uh, like a bull in a china shop, proclaim the truth and be unconcerned about the manner, about the tone, that the most biblical, the most Reformed thing, the the, the thing that wouldn't be most in line with the Reformed tradition is to be unconcerned with manners and simply boldly proclaim truth and righteousness and apply God's Word in a matter-of-fact, dogmatic kind of way in every situation. And we need to be careful about that. Uh, This is not the Reformed tradition. It's not Reformed at all. And uh, one example of a helpful piece of literature that reflects this is Samuel Miller's helpful book called Letters on Clerical Manners. And I've found in my life that this particular book puts me in my place extremely convicting I hesitate to even mention it because if you read it, then, then you'll be able to put me in my place. But, 
but it speaks about the manners and the courtesy and the appropriate behavior of a minister that flowing out of these biblical principles that we're going to consider tonight. And to see the way Samuel Miller unfolds this and unpacks this in these letters that he writes to the ministerial students of his day, to see the way he does that and then to look at what has become this sort of neo-reformed obsession with uh, you know, almost the point of taking it as a badge of honor to offend other people. It's a strong contrast between the reformed tradition and what seems to be happening today. It's a lost art. It's a lost art for me. I need to be growing in these things. It's a lost art pretty much across the board. But love is not naively simplistic in its application of biblical wisdom. Love takes into account the circumstances and the situation in which God's Word is being applied. And so we can be very naive and simplistic in thinking, well, here I have the Ten Commandments. Do this. Don't do that. And uh, I've memorized my shorter catechism. And therefore, I've got everything I need to be as wise as I can possibly be. And of course, this is not the case. God's law, God's wisdom, is very nuanced. Of course, there are black and white issues. We're not advocating Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics. But situations play a part in the application of biblical ethics and biblical wisdom. There's no doubt about this. When we see a certain statement, love does not behave rudely, you can see that that phraseology is pointing to the fact that we need to be thinking about how other people take what we're saying and doing. That we need to be sensitive to that subjective side, that situational side, that circumstantial side to obeying and applying the law of God. It's simplistic and naive to just say, well, I have these ethical principles, here it is, I've got it, and, and to be unconcerned with the circumstances and the situation. Let me give you a couple examples. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3. And by the way, we'll be relying heavily this evening upon wisdom literature because there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. We need knowledge. It's very important. So memorize the shorter catechism. Understand the principles of truth and righteousness. But there is this wisdom that is brought out in these wisdom books of the Bible that is also essential so that we can apply God's law and God's wisdom in the particular circumstances for which it's designed. So, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And at first you see, okay, there's a time to be born, a time to die. But look at verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And I think that reference to mourning and dancing is really helpful to bring out what we're saying here. Um, It's not sinful to mourn and it's not sinful to dance. So from a very naive, simplistic ethic, then we shouldn't be concerned about mourning and dancing. But if you were at a place of mourning, 
and you started hooping and hollering and dancing, that would be sinful, you see. Even though in a simplistic way, it's, it's ethically neither here nor there, whether you dance or whether you mourn, in itself, these are lawful activities, I suppose. You know, we could get into the issue of dancing. But, um, but if you dance at a setting where you ought to be respecting those that are mourning, that's sinful. So there is a situational aspect to biblical ethics and biblical wisdom. Um, you can see a number of examples. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. We need to understand the circumstances and the situation to know when it's time to do one thing or another. Let me give you uh, an even clearer example. Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So right there, uh, if we've got a naive, simplistic application of biblical ethics, then we're in trouble here because that's a contradiction if we take a simplistic approach. Uh, it tells us don't answer a fool according to his folly. Then it says that we are to answer a fool according to his folly. And of course, Solomon's point here is that in certain situations, we ought to have a certain objective. And so verse 4, in certain situations, we don't answer the fool according to his folly because the right objective in that situation is just to avoid encouraging him to continue this way. We don't sink to his level. But in other situations, under other circumstances, we have a different way of approaching it. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly. That is, reduce what he's saying to absurdity from an internal argument showing his inconsistency, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, in order for you to keep God's commandments in those verses, you need more than a naive, simplistic view of biblical ethics. You need to understand circumstances and situations. And that, in many respects, requires experience. Even Jesus Christ Himself grew in wisdom when He grew in experience. And the different phases of His life, He grew in experience in different categories of life, in different ways, different activities. But that experience, that life experience of understanding people of gaining people skills, of understanding the dynamic of just the way things work in the world that is so central to biblical wisdom literature, Jesus Himself grew in wisdom. He even learned obedience through suffering. His wise application of biblical law, His, his obedience uh, was, was not that he was ever disobedient, but he increased in that wisdom and that obedience over time because he grew in his ability to understand and discern circumstances. Uh, Proverbs 27.14, which is just in the next chapter of what we were considering just a moment ago. Proverbs 27.14. Listen to this. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. 
See that? This, you see where this is dovetailing with the idea that love is not rude. In order to know what's going to be rude, you have to understand the circumstances, the situation, the context, the person you're dealing with, what their expectations are. And so, he who blesses his friend, which would be a good thing, right? The simplistic perspective says, well, that's good. Jesus even said, bless those who curse you, and we should be blessing people and being a blessing to others and greeting them and so on. But here it says, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. So there is that situational aspect. If what you're doing is godly in and of itself, or at least morally neutral in and of itself, but you're doing it in the wrong way and at the wrong time, then it becomes foolish and it becomes sinful. And it's counted not as a good thing, even if you pronounce the most biblically orthodox and encouraging blessing upon your friend, um, if it's 3.30 a.m., that's, that's a curse. He's not happy about that. And it's, it's, it's rude. It's behaving rudely. So we need to understand uh, and get beyond this naive, simplistic approach. Jesus Himself said that in some cases, He talks in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, in some cases, we're to confront our brother for the speck in his eye. But then he says, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So there's certain people that we're to confront. There's certain people that it's just not worth it. Just, just don't say anything. And it takes wisdom and experience and insight and knowledge to be able to apply these biblical principles in any given circumstance or situation. And so, one of the implications here is that we need to remember that imprudence is never the solution to compromise. When we see people in the church compromising, we might say, well, you know, look at all the, look, look at all the compromise in the church today people aren't taking biblical ethics biblical principles seriously they're they're running roughshod over clear biblical doctrines and so the solution is just to throw caution to the wind and just get out there and do something bold but imprudence is not the solution to compromise in fact in the life of the church i can tell you from experience that Nothing fans the flames of compromise in the church like imprudence. Uh, because when you have people, perhaps they're a pastor or an elder or, or whatever, but they rise up and they begin to speak the truth in a way that is browbeating people. They begin to, to be brash, a bull in a china shop. They're not being prudent. They're not speaking the truth in love. And they scatter the flock. What happens? Well, that strengthens the hands of the people that may be promoting compromise. Because now they have some talking points. Hey, if you're serious about the truth, look what it's going to do to the church. And so, in many cases, imprudence is, is the, it's the devil's workshop. Because he uses it to scare people away from true biblical reformation. Because we can so easily fall into this naive, simplistic attitude where we're not speaking the truth carefully and wisely. 
so yes, people are compromising, but let's not go to the other extreme and fail to exercise biblical wisdom. Another implication here is that we need to beware of judging others in a naive and simplistic way. Jesus says in John 7.24, judge not according to appearance, but with righteous judgment. Because the application of God's law at times in certain situations uh, is nuanced, we need to be very careful that we're not making harsh and dogmatic judgments toward other people on issues that are not black and white, on issues of wisdom, on issues of discernment and discretion. We need to be careful when we don't have all the details of the circumstances of those decisions that those people have made. We don't have the the knowledge and insight of the situation, and so we need to be careful that we're not quick to judge others. Children, don't be quick to judge your parents. Church members, don't be quick to make judgments against your elders, so on and so forth, if you don't have all the information that those people have. Don't be quick to judge your brother or sister in anything. I mean... You know, you could say, if, if somebody's late to prayer meeting, you know, you could, you know, but do you know why they're late? Maybe, they're, maybe something came up, you see. You don't have all the information, and you don't want to be censorious and judgmental without all that information. Think of Job's friends. These guys, I mean, this is a perfect example of imprudent orthodoxy. Because Paul even quotes from Job's friends. It's the inspired truth of God. What they had to say, for the most part, in its doctrinal essence, was orthodox. It was the truth of God. It's, a, it's really a beautiful book to study. But their application of it to Job's circumstances was completely off. They weren't paying close attention to Job and his situation, and so they took wonderfully biblical principles and misapplied them because they weren't sensitive to the details and the circumstances of Job's life. Uh, We need to be very careful of an imprudent orthodoxy. Um, So love is not naively simplistic in its application of biblical wisdom. Secondly, love is not willfully inconsiderate or oblivious to the circumstances and preferences of others. Love is not willfully inconsiderate or oblivious toward the circumstances and preferences of others. We saw this morning we can't be slaves to the opinions of other people. Absolutely. Uh, The true Jew, Paul says, is one whose praise is not from men, but from God. Absolutely. But true love is not going to be willfully inconsiderate or oblivious toward the circumstances and preferences of others. Think of the command in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where it says uh, to consider one another. Consider one another. Consider them. Consider their circumstances. Consider their situation so that you can stir them up to love and good works. In that context, the apostle is thinking of the, the gathered church every Lord's Day. Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together and he says that as you're gathering together on the Lord's day and of course at other times as well consider one another get to know each other understand the circumstances of that person's life understand their 
circumstances, their preferences, so that you can then strategically speak seasonable words that will stir them up to love and good works. So that you don't say things that stir them up to other kinds of feelings, bitter feelings, because you don't know who they are and what what makes them tick. So we can't be willfully inconsiderate or oblivious. Now we're going to put our foot in our mouth. I do it all the time. We're going to say things or do things that unbeknownst to us are insensitive. Uh, We're going to be oblivious and absent-minded. Again, this is why I waited so long to preach this. It's a hard topic for myself. But we, we, we can't be willfully so. We have to try. We have to make an effort to consider other people so that we understand what might be rude or offensive to them. So love is not going to bat a thousand, at least for us, short of the Lord Jesus Christ or short of ourselves in heaven. We're not going to bat a thousand, but we're, we're going to consider others. We're going to make an effort to consider them. And Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 8.13 that I think is relevant here. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And the only point I'm drawing out of this verse is that you have to know what could possibly make your brother stumble, whether it's meat or food or whatever it is. Paul's statement would not make any sense. It would have no meaning if he wasn't making an effort to understand what those things are that might trigger other people's problems or their offense against us or whatever. Uh, In order for you to apply 1 Corinthians 8.13, you need to be considering other people and what could be an issue and what could cause them to stumble, what could be rude in their eyes. And uh, you go to the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and listen to this, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, See there, he's, he's not pursuing the praise of men. He's not enslaved to that. He's free from all men. He serves the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. So let's not get the idea that the Apostle Paul is merely the kind of guy who would write to the Galatians and say, you know, I wish that these Judaizing Pharisees would go emasculate themselves. He did say that. Paul's not afraid to speak hard truth. He's not afraid to say what needs to be said and to be bold for the truth. But the fact of the matter is that if we, if we go cherry-picking for these verses, these types of bold statements, and we miss these kinds of statements, like 1 Corinthians 9, then we're, we're not getting an accurate picture of the Christian life or of the Apostle Paul. Paul was not seeking to be a man-pleaser. He was not falling into the trap or the snare of man-fearing. 
But what he was doing is strategically living for the sake of the gospel. The winner of souls is wise. He was seeking to win these people. And in order to do that, he had to be sensitive to their circumstances, their background, their preferences, not to be enslaved to it, not to hold back with the truth because it might offend them, but to avoid unnecessary offenses. He had to know who he was dealing with. And he had to be flexible in the way he communicated, the way he lived, the way he interacted with these people. He didn't have this naive, simplistic, well, let's just blow the trumpet. He didn't have that mentality. Love does not behave rudely. And so Paul made an active effort to find out what the pitfalls might be so that he could avoid being rude, so that he could be winsome, so that he could win these people to the Lord. Uh, Romans 12.18 says, Live at peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you. Once again, one of many biblical commands that presupposes that we're taking time to consider the circumstances and preferences and background of others so that we can figure out, okay, what might be something that would detract from the peace and unity that we have in Christ? What, what's a pitfall? What's a trigger? I'm going to try to avoid that as best I can. Love does not behave rudely. Love is not out there um, just brash and, and, and uh, trampling these things underfoot. Love is sensitive. Love has antennas socially to figure out how most effectively to deal with people. Uh, one example of this is Acts 23, verse 6. The Apostle Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, the, the rulers of the Jews and he was brought before them and as he's presenting his case notice Paul's perception of his audience of his circumstances by the way read through Jesus teachings in the gospels how many times does it say he noticed you know the the audience that he was speaking to he noticed that these people trusted in themselves that they were righteous so he told this parable Jesus is always sensitive in his preaching and teaching to perceive those to whom he's speaking to tailor make his message to be most relevant for them Uh, to probe them and convict them on areas that that might be a hot button issue but he he probes it but to avoid unnecessary offense and to be strategic and winsome the same is true of Paul's epistles he's always tailoring his content to his audience. Well, notice here, Acts 23, 6, Paul is before the Sanhedrin, he's before the high priest, and it says, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he, he actually brought out the aspect of his own background and the aspect of his message that would be tailor-made for that audience in that circumstance to help get himself off the hook. And we're told, verse 7, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Because, of course, the Pharisees are saying, well, wait a second, we believe in the resurrection of the dead over against those Sadducees hey, maybe this Paul has something to say. You see, he, he said what needed to be said. Jesus does it all the time in the Gospels. He's very careful, very considerate of his audience. You see it in John 4 with the woman at the well. 
Jesus speaks to this woman at the well with a sensitivity to who she is, to what's happening. He uses illustrations from drawing water out of a well to illustrate the Gospel. Uh, He's sensitive to her in terms of her ethnicity. And he doesn't pull punches in terms of convicting her of sin, but he does it in a careful and wise and effective way. Uh, Of course, salvation is a miracle, but uh, we shouldn't tempt the Lord by evangelizing in a way that almost on the surface is calculated to offend people uh, that is most likely to offend them regardless of what we happen to be saying at a given time. Uh, we shouldn't, you know, it's a miracle, but let's not, let's not push it. Let's not tempt the Lord. Let's try to be as winsome and strategic as we can in following our Lord's example. Love does not behave rudely. Thirdly, love strives to be seasonable. 3.30 a.m. is not the time to bless your, your friend. Uh, you need to find the proper season, the proper time. To everything, there is a season. We saw that from Ecclesiastes. And the Proverbs is, is full of statements that reinforce this fact. Let me just uh, give you another one here. Proverbs 15.23. Proverbs 15, verse 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. A word spoken in due season, how good it is. Seasonable words. Seasonable Actions. You can read in John 21, verse 7, when Jesus uh, performed a miracle and, and gave the apostles a great catch of fish, and Peter discerned that it was Jesus on the beach. And what does it say? That he was, the ESV, I think, puts it in a helpful way. He was stripped for work. Okay? Thinking about being seasonable here. He was with a bunch of other men. And he, let's just say, put it this way, he he took his shirt off or whatever. He's on the boat, out in the middle of the lake with a bunch of other men. That was appropriate. But then he goes back to the beach where Jesus is, perhaps mixed company, and he he puts his tunic, he puts his shirt back on. Um, We we think this way all the time. Every aspect of our lives, we're always thinking about in this context, in that context, being seasonable. But the Bible says we need to think this way Uh, about all of our words and actions from a spiritual standpoint. Listen to the example of Jesus. You can turn there if you want, but just listen. Uh, Isaiah 50, verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4. This is Jesus Christ speaking prophetically through the book of Isaiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season. To him who is weary, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. What this is saying of Christ is that as he's growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, day in and day out, morning by morning, day by day, as he's reading the scriptures, as he's observing the world that God made and considering other people and what makes them tick, as he's gaining this sort of full-fledged, full-orb knowledge of 
God's Word and of God's world, he's growing in his wisdom, in his knowledge. He has the tongue of the learned. And so, there are lots of things that Job's friends could have said. What they said was biblical if you take it out of the context. But in the context with Job, Job's friends said the absolute worst thing they possibly could have said. We don't have time to get into that. But, but that's the case. There are a lot of biblical truths that we can bring to bear in certain situations. And we need, by the, the Word and Spirit of God, following Christ's example, to try to develop the tongue of the learned to know which truths, in what manner to speak in certain situations to certain people. And therefore, we need to understand the people around us. Is a person weary? Or, or are they on their high horse? Or, or what is the circumstance? Is the person I'm speaking to converted or unconverted? Are they jaded or are they interested? I mean, we need to be considering the way Jesus did the people to whom He spoke. And so He sought to find a word in season to speak to those who are weary. And this is even what the Lord requires of the elders of the church. Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus tells a parable of the elders of the church and their accountability at the last day. And He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So the elders of the church following Christ's example as the great shepherd of the sheep are to understand the flocks of God. Understand the sheep that Christ purchased with His own blood. And feed them in due season. And take into account the circumstances and the situation. Obviously, we're not going to do that perfectly. But the, the sermon point that I'm trying to reinforce here is that love strives to be seasonable. Love makes an effort to be seasonable. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a seasonable word that we ought to be bringing. And that's true, as I mentioned earlier, in our evangelism. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 4, 4, and 5. I know we're jumping around here, but uh, such is the nature of this type of sermon. But Colossians 4, 4, and 5. Paul is praying or asking for prayer, verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he's asking for them to pray for his preaching and teaching ministry. Then he says, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each one. So he's saying your speech should be seasoned with grace, almost like you would put seasoning on your food to make it taste better for the person that's receiving it. Or for yourself, if you're eating the meal. And uh, sometimes it's rude actually to put salt on your food before you've tasted it because it, it, it has a certain implication for the, for the person who prepared the food. Maybe it doesn't need salt. Maybe it's good just as it is. But that's another story. The point is, our speech should be seasoned with grace so that so far as it depends upon us, we're presenting it in a way that is calculated to win the person based upon what we know about them. We shouldn't just be flinging arrows at people without at least taking into account 
what we know about them and how we might win them to Christ. Uh, There's much in the gospel. I mean, telling people that they're damned to hell unless they repent is offensive enough. We need to be striving. Again, not looking to have the evangelism police out, you know, critiquing everybody to the point where we're so paralyzed, we're afraid to say anything. No, but let's speak the truth in love. Jesus, in certain settings, said uh, that, look, you guys are a brood of vipers. In other situations, we're told that he did not break the bruised reed. Well, how do you tell the difference between a brood of vipers and a bruised reed? Biblical wisdom, observation, experience, knowledge of the Word of God. All of these things flow together and we need to strive to be seasonable. You look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, he, you know, The false teachers, he's ready to have them emasculate themselves. He says to the people who have gotten circumcised, you've fallen from grace. And you compare that to his letter to Philemon where he says, essentially, I'm not even going to command you to do what you need to do. I'm just going to make a request and I know that you'll take care of it. Uh, Different situations require a different approach. If Paul had come down with the hammer in Philemon, that would not have been a good thing. Uh, If he had been extremely gentle and hands-off in Galatia, that would have been a horrible solution to their problem. So, love strives to be seasonable. Fourthly, love does not impose itself beyond the proper boundaries of its place and calling. You'll notice that in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this statement, love does not behave rudely, is sandwiched in between two references to selfishness. Uh, Love does not parade itself, so self-promotion is not puffed up. And then, of course, we have love does not behave rudely. And then, love does not seek its own. So it's sandwiched in here between these references to self. And I would argue there's a reason for that, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon. When we're rude, it tends to be Maybe just for myself, but I think across the board, it tends to be when we're being selfish or concerned with self and not concerned with others. In fact, many times when we're actively rude, it's that we're self-imposing. We're imposing ourselves. Uh, Think of the times that you thought somebody else was being rude. Sometimes this is the most helpful way to do it. Um, Think about the times maybe at family get-togethers around Thanksgiving table or something like that. Think about, over the years, the things that have really bothered you. You say, wow, that person's being rude. Uh, it, it, it's when somebody is, is meddling in something that is not really their business. Uh, it's when someone is constantly interrupting other people, not letting them get a word out, not letting them get a word in edgewise. Uh, it's just nonstop. Won't let the person finish their sentences, but have to insert whatever they're saying. Uh, It's when people continue to give unsolicited patronizing feedback. Oh, you know, you know, the, you know, your mother-in-law comes into the kitchen and so on. I mean, there are these sorts of uh, cliches, but the fact of the matter is these are the things that bother us. Well, that was rude. Somebody kind of makes a comment that implies that you're, you're not quite doing it right, or instead of thanking you for doing something, they point out what you did wrong. Those kinds of things, this sort of self-imposition, 
interrupting, brash. Uh, Again, think about if you're having a Thanksgiving meal with your family and somebody just brings up these brash, opinionated statements without any context whatsoever. Uh, Around people that you know, this is not going to go well. Uh, Self-imposing. It's a problem. Uh, We need to be careful about, even as authority figures, being overbearing. Overbearing toward our children. Provoking them to wrath. By uh, abusing our authority rather than using it as an instrument for the good of those God has placed under our care. We can be rude by being ungrateful, being entitled, being demanding or dismissive. Again, we can be, actually we can, in fact there was a book on manners that uh, I ran across a number of years ago and it said that the number one most rude thing that you can do is to accuse other people of being rude. You know, if you have people over to your home uh, for dinner, the most unmannerly thing you can do, the most discourteous, uncourteous thing you can do is accuse them of violating the principles of of manners and courtesy. So again, uh, there are many ways to look at this, but uh, we need to be careful of imposing ourselves beyond those proper boundaries. And fifthly and finally, love conveys a sympathetic awareness of others. So we think of the negative, love does not behave rudely, but what is the positive? Love, though at least for us, uh, I'm not sure that we want to imagine Jesus unintentionally being rude or something like that, but for us, we know that even if we are loving, even if we love other people, we're going to fail. We're going to put our foot in our mouth. We're going to say and do things that are going to be offensive whether we know it or not. But love, in a positive sense, conveys a sympathetic awareness of others. And you think of the example of Christ. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come unto Me. Jesus doesn't say, get over here now. That's a command. I don't care who you are or what you've experienced. If you've had a good day or a bad day, get over here now. He doesn't say that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he conveys a sympathetic awareness of other people's situation. Even when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, I mean the brood of vipers, these guys that were making for themselves twice the children of hell, Jesus represents God's willingness to forgive and even plead with Pharisees in the parable of the prodigal son. When the father comes to the older brother who represents the Pharisees and we're told the father pleaded with him. And that's Jesus' way of saying that even for these hardened ungodly, hateful, self-righteous Pharisees that Jesus had no problem condemning in in its proper season, issuing those statements. But He also uh, conveyed a sympathetic awareness and a, a, a willingness of God to forgive and save even the chief of sinners, even the most Pharisaical among them, such as the Apostle Paul. And so we need, to, we need to follow in that example. And it's especially important for us to convey a sympathetic awareness of others because we fail. 
the fact is, people will put up with a lot if they know you're trying. And, and we should put up with a lot. I mean, we're going to get to love. Uh, love is not easily provoked. I suppose that would be the place to do it. But we should put up with a lot if people are trying. If, if you know, we all have blind spots, we all have quirks, and if we notice somebody's being rude in this or that way, but honestly, as we observe them, we know they are trying. And we sense that they're at least trying to be winsome, and we're looking for that. We're not looking for the faults. We're looking for something positive to build on, and we see it. We will and we should put up with a lot. That's why I'm still here for 10 years. Um, people put up with me. We put up with each other, even though we make missteps along the way. But we have to convey that sympathy through not just our words, but our actions that we're trying. We're going to have different personality clashes, but we convey that we are considering others. We do want to make an effort. Jesus, in his letters to the churches in Revelation, he's constantly saying, I know your works, I know your situation, I know your affliction. The more we communicate to others that we understand, we're trying to understand, we're making an effort to be as winsome and as considerate as possible, we're going to avoid a lot of drama and a lot of problems in the church. Uh, but if people get the sense that you're not trying, okay? Thankfully, I don't think that's, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to please man here, but I don't think that's a huge problem in our church. But if it becomes a huge problem, understand, it will be a huge problem. If people get the sense that you're not trying, that you're not listening, if your children in the home get the sense, moms and dads, that you're not making an effort to understand them, you don't give a rip, and you're just going to proceed with whatever you're going to do, then even the slightest offense can create a mountain of controversy. Even the slightest offense is going to provoke them to wrath. So, we know we're going to mess up. We know this is going to be a stumbling block. We're going to say and do stupid things. So we need to convey that sympathetic awareness. Make an effort to speak the truth and to live out our Christian faith in love. Uh, being sensitive, considering others, and by the grace of God, recognizing how it feels when people are rude to us. How did it feel when that guy tried to wake you up at 3.30 a.m.? You know, hey, brother, or whatever. How did that feel? You didn't like it. So then let's flip the script and let's do unto others as, they, as, as we would have them do unto us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, but even more so for Your Spirit who inspired that Word because we know without Him it's a dead letter. We ask that You would fan into flame our love for You, that we would seek Your approval and Your commendation first and foremost. But we also pray that You would enable us to love one another as You have loved us and that we would seek to stand for the truth and speak the truth in a loving manner, in a sensitive way, to do the best we can to love others and treat them the way we desire to be treated. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.